I am so blessed by the Asbury University Jazz. It's called Jazz Band. You guys are phenomenal. You're always welcome, every single chapel. It's okay. <laughs> we want to ruin your life forever. No, thank you. And also, Dr. Arnold, thank you for the very beautiful, powerful prayer for us in this uh, challenging time. Leonard Ravenhill once said, there is no greater tragedy than a sick church in a dying world. Think about it. There's no greater tragedy than a sick church in a dying world. Is there something in you that just, just longing, just desperation for the rebirth of a real church on mission to a world hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ? But there's no mission to the world until we, as the people of God, rediscover the gospel ourselves. That's the story of the Reformation. It's the story of the Pietistic movement, the Western revivals, Pentecostal revivals. All of these movements began by the gospel first being readdressed to people who already called themselves Christians. It's times like this that we find hope in the prophecy of Joel, who captured what it was like to live like many of us in a time of ecclesial exile, where all you have is a desperation and a hope that God might act and breathe new life into the people of God. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Joel, these are your lifeblood, along with Ezra and Nehemiah. These are great wells to draw upon in this time in our history as a church to help us negotiate safe passage through our time. I did a little uh, survey of Joel to see uh, all the people that he has called to repentance. And I have uh, a partial list here to make the point. Old people, young people, men, women, children, drunkards, farmers, servants, priests, Jews, non-Jews, nation under covenant, nations not under covenant. He kind of covers the whole field. Everybody's going that way. And Joel's saying, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. Yahweh is that way. The covenant's that way. Salvation's that way. In the midst of all of this, here you have hordes, armies like locusts coming in, ecclesial disaster, the nation being completely destroyed. In the middle of that, he lifts up his eyes in Joel 2.28, and he catches this vision. You've got to catch, and especially this week, all that's going on this week in our life, our nation is emblematic of the desperation that we're in. He looks up, he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in, in, on those days. Don't you love that? Here's jo Joel in this ecclesial disaster and he captures the great reversal. And he discovers that God's plan is still intact. Amen? Here's Jeremiah on the brink of the, a horrible disaster. The Babylonians are coming in. They're taking over. They, he's seen the humiliation of the dismantling of the nations. Jews are being locked in chains, being put on carts to Babylon. Others in disobedience fleeing back to Egypt. And towards the end of all of that disaster, what does Jeremiah do? He buys a piece of land. Isn't that crazy? 
Like if, the, if, the, if we were being completely taken over, everything destroyed, every inch taken over, the last thing you would do is buy a piece of land. But read it in Jeremiah 32. He buys the field of Anathoth from his cousin, Hanamel. He weighs out 17 shekels of silver. He took Sadiq, gives it to Baruch. But look what he said in verse 14. This is what the Lord God Almighty says, the God of Israel. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. That's a vision. It's what I call exilic purchases. Everyone needs to make exilic purchases right now. He buys the field of Anathoth because... He's caught up in a greater narrative. He was tuned into a narrative which was louder than the deafening march of the Babylonian armies. That's not easy. Can you hear the footsteps of Jesus in the midst of the clamoring boots of this culture? Jeremiah, likewise, looks up and he sees the, the covenant. He says in Jeremiah 31, I'll put my law in their minds, a new covenant, right in their hearts, no longer will a man teach his neighbors and his brothers saying, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. He caught a vision of a better day. John the Baptist at the end of 400 years of waiting, all kinds of promises, most unfulfilled. He still can look up and says, I baptize with water, but one who's coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, they're all pointing to a day, not just a 24-hour day, not just a, you know, chronos. This is kairos, a, a eschatological time when God would come in and do something that we cannot do on our own, something only the triune God can do. And so verse 1 of our text says, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now, what, what does the word Pentecost mean? Boy, it wasn't a very resounding response there. Um, okay. Let's try it again. And those who have a little more courage, a little louder. What does the word Pentecost mean? <laughs> okay, well, I, okay, 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 work, work some on that. It means 50th, all right? 50. Penta. Fift, Pentecost means 50 or 50th. And what that means is that the, uh, uh, you had the Israelites, of course, kind of passed over. Uh, they, left, they left Egypt. And then you have 50 days before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. I'm glad we rehearsed that. It's really important. Because what happens is, Jesus, of course, is crucified at Passover. That's not a mistake. It's all part of the whole, you know, reenactment of all of those redemptive themes. Christ is the sacrificial lamb, just like on Pentecost. They come out, and of course, uh, in 40 days is the ascension of Christ. There's 10 days of waiting. Now, that 10 days of waiting is... is is actually God waiting for the right moment in the redemptive calendar. If you ever had any doubt that God loves the church year, here it is. Even God waits for 10 days. Because it needs to happen on Pentecost, because Pentecost was the day when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. So this Pentecost, this new creation Pentecost, God will write his law on our hearts to the Holy Spirit, right? So it's very, very important. Now, when you think about the 10-day wait, I, I've often thought of it in terms of this kind of this whole liturgical thing, the redemptive calendar, all of that. But, you know, I wonder, well, what are they doing? What are the disciples doing? Are they, like, shooting pool? Watching YouTube videos? Playing, you know, like uh, some kind of video game? What are they doing? Drinking coffee? 
they're actually, you know, part of the pastoral side of the 10 days is they are in desperation. They, they, they do not know what to do. God has broken into their lives in this amazing reality of the resurrection. Christ has appeared to them. They're behind locked and barred doors. They're trying to figure out what's happening. They are in desperation. They're praying. They're fasting. They're, stay, they're realizing that it's going to be, whatever's going to happen is going to be very, very messy. It's going to be very disruptive. And their lives would never be the same. They didn't know what to do. I mean, nothing could have compared them for this. And I have a short, since I mentioned YouTube, let's watch a short YouTube video that makes this point. Listen carefully. This is important. It's a warning, in fact. It's something that will impact how you live your life. Never fly first class. It ruins flying and coach forever. And never take Joe Manganiello. He ruins men forever. Never get a king-size bed. Never get a walk-in closet. Never upgrade to three-ply. Never. Never sit courtside. Never take a shortcut to the Emmys. Never add bacon. And most importantly, never get Hulu. Never, ever get Hulu. With tons of shows and movies, exclusive originals, plus live TV for sports. Sports! It'll ruin TV for you forever. Forever. <laughs> Trust me, just don't get Hulu. You've been warned. Brothers and sisters, you've been warned. Never get filled with the Holy Spirit. Never, never. It will ruin your life forever. It will ruin church for you forever. You thought church was having a good committee meeting. Not anymore. You thought church was surviving general conference and not having too many dead or wounded. You thought church was finishing a building campaign. You thought church was going there and hearing a tepid sermon, getting out in an hour and thinking everything was normal. You see, getting filled with the Spirit will disrupt all of that. Be careful what you ask God for in your life. It will ruin even seminary for you. <laughs> I even got bent on his edge of his seat. <laughs> you thought this place was about theological education alone. Oh my goodness, you know, some of you have managed to do even that at a distance from God. We know how to negotiate these things. We're experts at it. Asbury Seminary is committed to the highest bar of academic excellence. It is amazing and it's transformative. But we also want to assure you that your whole life must be transformed by the power of the Spirit. Let me just put it bluntly. What does it profit a pastor if he or she comes to seminary with an addiction to pornography, gets theologically trained at the highest level, goes to ministry still addicted to pornography, and you fill in the blank? That's just one. The whole point is... God has a whole plan for us, for our whole lives. And he won't accept something else, something half-weight. 
J.D. Walt, the former dean of the chapel at Asbury, was once asked, what makes Asbury unique? Now, if you know J.D. Walt, you don't know what he'll come out of his mouth. And I was there. He said it somewhat in, some tongue-in-cheek. He said, Asbury is where, I can't do it with the, with the Arkansas accent, okay, but Asbury is where Harvard meets Hogwarts. I think what he was trying to say Harvard, Hogwarts, get it? Okay. Um, on the one hand, academic excellence, but also a place where deeper things happen, not worldly magic, but the deeply spiritual reality that fuse your academic pursuits into a holy matrimony, which allows your whole life to be laid bare before God. When you look for the fire of God to fall in your life, it's disruptive. Look for the the wind of God to blow through your life. You'd better be ready for trouble. Because you can't receive, this is one of the great ironies, you can't receive the Spirit of God until you're at the end of your rope. In fact, amazingly, God will not fill you until he first empties you. And if you're feeling empty today, it might be the very place you need to be. You can't build that fire that he alone can light. You can't blow that wind that he alone can blow. And no class or seminar can get you to that place. And so Acts 2 really is about divine disruption. Let me just mention three that come up in the text. First is in verse 2, the blowing of a mighty wind, this ruach of God. Now, when Jews read this or accounted this, the idea of the breath of God, they had to think about that first breath of Eden. This breathed God's life into us. It separates from the animals. This was the Imago Dei. But this is another, this is the second breath of the new creation. This separates us from all the human-driven ministries, all the human-driven initiatives that allows us to be on full course to work with God in his mission in the world. This breath is actually a mighty wind which will blow away all our comfortable Christianity that so easily sits in a cozy but dying embers of a failed Christendom. I want to change the liturgy. The wind of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's do that. The wind of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Verse 3, the fire of God falls. Now the Jews, when they thought about fire, they thought about purification, thought about guidance. They couldn't help but remember the fire that fell on Elijah's sacrifice It demonstrates God's power over all human constructs, all the altars we would build. They also remember the fire in the wilderness that guided them in their greatest need in the darkness, that pillar of fire by night that guided them. So this fire purifies, it guides, and God does something in the Spirit by coming into our lives. We often, of course, rightfully celebrate the incarnation, Jesus Christ, seven human flesh, but Pentecost is also the third person of the Trinity stepping into human flesh, your flesh, my flesh, in a earthly but nevertheless important form of the incarnation. You recall that in the first sermon in this series, we identified seven metaphors in the Old Testament uh, that bring out the Holy Spirit. The dove, the cloud, the fire, the breath, the wind, the water, and the oil. And I told you, all seven of these we revisited in the New Testament We already encountered the water and dove at his baptism. Last time in the upper room, we got the breath 
as Jesus breathed on disciples, received the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts 2, we get two more of them, wind and fire. And we'll later on, we'll see in the series, we'll see cloud and oil. But the fire of God is absolutely crucial. It is the power of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit coming upon the church. We should not leave home without it. The fire of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thirdly, tongues. Oh my goodness. Is he really going to talk about tongue speaking? Yes, we are. In verse 4, we're told they actually speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, let me say up front, whether you personally speak in tongues or not, in my mind, is not really as important as some have made it out to be. Book of, Book of Acts highlights a wide range of ways in which people bear witness to the Spirit. Speaking in tongues is one of them. Uh, I believe it's fully operative today, as 1 Corinthians tells us. But Paul says, not all speak in tongues. Okay, not everybody. But the point of it all is clear in Corinthians, the purpose of tongue speaking, as with all the gifts, is to edify the body, right? So the question is, how does this experience edify the body? What happened that day? That's my question. Now, if you read the text, and it was read beautifully today by our, our uh, students, but each one heard in their own languages. Are not they speaking, these people, Galileans? How do we hear in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. I'm so happy, thankful it was in Arabic. Oh my goodness, so wonderful. We hear them all declaring the wonders of God. What does this mean, they ask. We get that done, done in all the languages. What does this mean? That's the crucial question. Well, to, to think about it, you have to ask, what would this mean to them that were there? What would they think about that? How would they understand this? God is in doing something in their lives that they would understand in a certain way. Well, they have to, for sure, look back and think about the amazing experience in, in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And the whole Babel project is really the human project, right? To, uh, you know, you want to go out, you, you're, you're, uh, you want to settle down. You want to uh, make your name great, you know, build a monument yourself. That's kind of the world's project. Here, that all gets reversed. The world's languages are united again. The world's project is, is collapsed, and God's project, which is that we, we are pilgrims, don't settle down, we're pilgrims. We don't try to make our name great. And then we're looking for that city whose maker and builder is God not our own city. Pentecost also looks to the future. Pentecost not only reverses the curse of the past, but it also looks forward to the new creation. You can't have this experience of Acts 2 without realizing John is anticipating that day when a multitude that no one can count from every tribe and nation and people and language before the throne for the Lamb. Now that's a vision. That God is doing something global. The church is, in fact, the most ethnically diverse movement in the history of the world. We are living in all the realities that that day was simply foreshadowed and someday will be fulfilled in the great uh, eschaton. Now, on the day of Pentecost, we are encountering the first of three great streams of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. 
It's going to take this whole series to unfold all three of these, but this is the first one, which is power for a global witness. Now, over the years, uh, I've heard many slogans about Asbury, but I think one of the most kind of persistent slogans that describes Asbury is this, where head and heart go hand in hand. How many of you have heard that? Okay. Where head and heart go hand in hand. You've heard, more of you have heard of that than the, uh, the meaning of the word Pentecost, so we're, we're in a good place here. It's a good phrase, and I love what it means, but the three strands that we'll look at actually go, one goes to your head, one goes to your heart, one goes to your feet. Today's actually the, the feet. I would like our slogan to be, where head and heart go hand in hand so the feet can run. Now, I don't think Kevin Bish will go for it. It doesn't really have the ring. I see Kevin's back there. He's like, what? But even if we stick with the kind of basic, you know, head and heart go hand in hand, just when you hear that, think, and the feet go running, or the feet go walking. But it's about a movement that goes on here. And the three main themes we'll look at over the course of this uh, series will be the, the first today, disruptive power for global witness, the discerning wisdom for life's challenges, and then divine holiness for sanctified purity. Now, when the tongue speaking happens, it brings up this whole global witness of the church, Whenever a church experiences renewal and awakening, it is not simply to solve our problems. It actually thrusts us out to the ends of the earth. It gives us a burden for the lost, those who've never heard the gospel, whether it be a millennial who has just lost the memory of the gospel or some people group that's never, ever heard the gospel. There are thousands of groups that do not have even so much as John 3.16 in their language. In India, where I've worked, there are 2,000 people groups with no Christian witness. China has 444. Russia, 117. And on and on it goes. Who will purchase those fields? Will anybody here say, Lord, I'm going to purchase one of those fields for the gospel? Who will speak those languages? I'm leaving tomorrow for Tanzania. I mean, is this today's Tuesday? No, Thursday. I'm leaving Thursday for Tanzania. And uh, I'm going to go to a part of the world where our daughter works. And, you know, I'm so proud of her for purchasing a field, not literally, but physically I mean, and spiritually. No one went to the Alagua. She said, I'll go to the Alagua. We need people to say that. And also people right here in Lexington, in Highbridge, that are just completely broken and need the gospel. We've been gazing our navels way too long. We've been in survival mode way too long. We've been preoccupied with our inner angst way too long. And we have a great vision that's been poured out for us that's global. And I really hope that this, this whole series, that you will begin to get out of survival mode, get out of your comfort zone, and go to a place that's disruptive. Just be willing to say, Lord, Take me to a place that's disruptive. It's not easy for me. And that could be a hundred different places for a hundred different people. There's no set way that works out. One person's disruption, another person's, you know, easy place. But everybody has to understand that God puts us in a place that he wants us to experience disruption so that we can be able to incorporate the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And the great thing about all this is that 
in the long run, we end up realizing what a great time we're going to have at it. That's what's so great. It really is fun. Who needs wine when you've got the Holy Spirit? I told, I, I told uh, Jessica that I just cannot wait for the day to come. We're in our 95th year. Come on, Jay. We've got to add this to our 100th anniversary. Sometime next five years, we've got to have someone come in here from the outside and walk into our worship. Oh, my goodness. Those holiest people have had too much wine. We've been boring people way too long. Okay, I'm going to get going too long. I'm going to stop. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to capture a vision for the last days that are even now breaking in the present evil order. In this world, if, you, if there's any message that we're sensing right now in our society is this world is broken, there's no political solutions, really? Do you really believe there's a political solution to this? There's no political solution. There's no legal solution. It's not a forensic problem. This is a deeply spiritual problem and the only answer is the preaching of the gospel. And it'll only happen when we rediscover the gospel to go to those hard places and change what God is, and allow us to enter into what God is doing in the world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your work. I just pray that even now as we, as we pray, there'll be some right here in our midst who say, Lord, Take me out of my comfort zone. Take me out of the place that I've been trying to go into, climbing a dimensional ladder, or going through some kind of motion, spiritual motions. Lord, take me to that place where I know that I cannot do it unless you do a work in my life. Lord, fill us anew with your spirit. Give us that disruptive power for global witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a very festive ending. That's a great place to begin. If you feel that sense, Lord, take me out of this comfort zone. Feel free to come down and kneel down. Ask God to do it in your life. Amen.